The man who killed 20 of my friends. Oh, yes, I'll recognize him. Hello and welcome to Spacefall, a Blake 7 podcast. I'm Dave. I'm Richard. Welcome to our discussion on the episode Seek, Locate, Destroy, first screened in Britain on the 6th of February 1978. Obviously written by Terry Nation and directed by Veer Lorimer, who is back after his stint on Cygnus Alpha. I recall we had some good things and bad things to say about his direction in Cygnus Alpha, so mm. we'll have a look and see how he does here. And this one attracted 10.9 million viewers, a big jump from last week. Mm, that's... I mean, pushing 11 million is a pretty big deal, even in those days. That's right. We'll kick into it with our initial thoughts. I enjoyed this one even more than I expected, I've got to say. Mm -hmm. I went into this one not really sure what to expect. It's not an episode I put off the shelf all that often. Right. Uh, Partly because it's very familiar to me, because it was... The first part of the second compilation. Yes, that's right. So I'd seen a lot of it where it just where it has got a massive chunk cut out of it. Uh, so it's one I'm very familiar with. It's not the one that's got the most exciting sort of like one-line plot summary. But I really enjoyed it. I thought it flew through its running time very well. There's some good moments. It kind of like Spacefall, although I don't think it's quite as good as Spacefall, but it's still pretty good. But like Spacefall, it gets a lot of exposition done and a lot of introductory stuff done without you really noticing and without you know getting in the way of a good plot. So I've actually got a lot of good stuff to say about this. Yeah, I really enjoyed this one as well. I made the note while I was watching it, this, in some ways, it is a bit of a reset or a restating probably of what the series is about. We've sort of gone through all the introductory stuff, the crew's now assembled, and, you know, we've had our first little adventure where we encountered the web. Well, well it is, because last episode we had our first full sci-fi fantasy adventure plot yep and this time we have our first full complete attacking the federation plot yes the series is now underway so of course we do a little bit of a just a a restating of what the series is actually about so we get to see the liberator crew attacking the federation we obviously now have a face to the federation or two faces to the federation yes that the crew can now push against and yeah i said i really enjoyed this one yeah and look i suppose we should say at the top its biggest contribution to Blake 7 is, of course, as you intimated there, the introduction of Serverland and Travis. <gasps> Spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll talk about them shortly. But Richard, this is yours to lead us through. It is. So where are we starting? The episode really breaks down quite neatly, I think, in, into three segments. We have the initial raid on Kentaro. We then obviously cut to the Federation where we meet our new characters. Yep. Then we have the final section where these two ideas intersect. Yeah, so the raid on Kentaro, it's not a repeat of the B-plot from Time Squad, but it is very similar in that Blake's crew goes to a Federation establishment that is represented by a 1970s industrial facility and they go and do, they go and do some sabotage. I'm not, I'm not knocking it for that, but it is very much a continuation of that, that feel. It is that raid writ large. I mean, you get the idea this is obviously quite a planned operation. I mean, Blake teleports down first and, and yes, gets to have the nice hero moment where he comes down and does the, the initial scout. 
He then teleports Villa down, the two of them infiltrate the main base, and then once they're where they need to be, obviously they then teleport down the, the rest of the Raiders. Yes, so they've clearly got a large plan, you know, they've got phase one and phase two and phase three, and yes. it's all very, very carefully worked out. And as you said, it's interesting to see each member of the crew actually beam down almost individually when they needed for their bit of... The bit of the mission, and yeah. everybody has a role. Blake obviously is in charge and he does the initial recce. Villa's role is to help them break in. Avon's role clearly is to disconnect the cipher machine and Gan and Callie are on crowd control <laughs> and, and placing the charges, clearly. Yeah, yeah. The, the fact that they've got this, this teleportation system clearly is shown as being quite handy for these raids yeah. because you can just bring people in and out as you need them. It is. So one of the things that occurred to me whilst watching this was to ask the question whether the Federation security is particularly lax such that these guys can regularly get into their bases and do a lot of damage. But the episode, I think, does really quite address that because, as you said, the teleport does make a big difference in terms of beating their security. And it is emphasised that what Villa is able to do particularly in getting them in is a very unusual talent that not every group of freedom fighters slash terrorists would have. That's right. And look, the plan initially goes quite well. I mean, they only encounter problems because they have trouble getting the cipher machine disconnected. So let's just go through the, the key aspects of this raid and sort of break it down. As you said, Blake comes down first. He sort of makes sure the coast is clear and introduces us. He has a encounter that we'll, um, we're, we're putting I off mean, talking he obviously about. Obviously, he does, yeah, said, he coast is clear. He gets a bit of an idea of the layout of the base, etc. I mean, look, you do obviously have the thing... There's clearly no one watching the skies that suddenly this ship just appears and hovers over their planet. Or I guess you could also understand that with the Federation not yet familiar with the concept of teleport, Mm. a ship in orbit is kind of a nothing. Mm. Um, We really never see this concept of aerial bombardment in Black 7. No, true. So that that doesn't seem to be a particular threat. So as long as it stays in orbit, I don't think anyone perhaps cares. Yeah. We then cut to Villa, whose line is basically, I've just thought of a completely new strategy... It's called running away. <laughs> and it's done in this wonderful sort of way where Keating doesn't play it, you know, as a particularly sort of cowering or, or weak or timid. It's almost like the smart aleck at work. It is, actually. He's really not very cowardly here at all. No. I mean, he has the initial thing. Yes, he goes down. And, and, and really, again, when they're confronted with the fact they have to get through this gate... And I'm going to make the thing, I know it's got a very nice security panel to it. <laughs> that is a very ordinary gate. It is a terrible gate. I made that note as well, that for all of the, the talk about all this crawling with security systems and everything, it, 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 is, is, very it is a rusting chicken wire gate. Yes, it's very obviously a rusted wire gate. <laughs> it is unfortunate. But coming back on track, when he's confronted with the security system, he is quite calm and quite thorough and extremely effective in what he does. And the script also takes the time to have Villa go through what he's actually doing mm. and how it all works. So, you know, it goes through, it asks for the identification, and then as it's about to send the no-raise-the-alarm signal, he bypasses it yes, and, and lets and them through. That's right. Immediately before that, we've had the moment where he says, there's the lock he can't open if he's scared enough when he has to go and hide <laughs> in the cupboard. Yeah. We then get the lovely moment of Villa distracting the guards. Hello there. How are you? Excuse me wondering about your premises, but I wonder if you can help me. I'm an escaped prisoner. I was a thief, but recently I've become interested in sabotage. In a small way, you understand. Nothing too ambitious. I hate vulgarity, don't you? Anyway, I've come to blow something up. Yes. When I was 
a kid, I thought that was hilarious. Mm. As a teenager, I thought it was terrible. And now that I'm a, a more mature adult, I've gone back to thinking it's hilarious again. It, it then winds up with him clearly belting the guard on his side over the head with his with his esky. <laughs> <laughs> I did make a note that there's a lot of Federation guards here who fall over unconscious at the merest push. Yes. Which is a bit unfortunate. But... Yeah. Now, I guess we've sort of skirted around the robot. <laughs> we probably should talk about it for a moment. Look... The robot wasn't as bad as I remembered it being, which isn't saying a lot. No. We should say the robot prot, I believe, it was put to an outside contractor. The concept was intended it was something they were going to use in the series quite a bit, having mm. shelled out a fair bit of money for it. But, yes, when you actually see the robot, and I think the director has probably made a conscious effort, look, we're going to have to use it in some shots, but we're going to keep it to a minimum. It's good in that it does help to create this illusion that we are in a sophisticated, futuristic establishment. So when you've got, you know, a security robot walking around, you've got all the security, you know, the the dialogue's talking it up, that does help to turn, you know, a 1970s industrial plant Mm. into something a bit more spacey. Yes. The flame gun is good. The actual look of it's pretty good. It's really just the way it moves. I think the intention was that it would be radio-controlled and whatever, I think they wound up basically pulling it along on wires because it either wouldn't move properly or the radio control gear and it kept breaking down. Well, and I'm pretty sure, looking forward to the next time that it's on, Mm. they use tracks. Yeah, they do. It's presented, obviously, as a threat. I mean, there's a bit where Blake first sees and he makes a conscious effort to run away from the robots clearly tracking him. The intention, obviously, is it works on motion because when it comes close, I mean, Blake's solution is just to throw himself face down on the ground and stay immobile, obviously, so motion sensors or whatever won't pick him up. And then when it sees the moving cable and flames yes. and things like it's done its job. So, yeah. Yeah. Look, it's flawed, but if you're going to pick on Blake 7 for the effects, well... Oh, for sure. You know, we're not going to get past the rusty wire gates. No, so. for sure. Um, the other thing I had about it is when Blake teleports down, there is actually an announcement over the PA that says that the base is now under robot scanning. And you notice later on when the unconscious guard wakes up and goes to sound the alarm, the robot is in the area because Villa closes the door. You notice the guard obviously stops waits for the robot to go, then makes a run Mm. for the alarm button. So clearly it has no function to detect Federation people. They obviously base goes in a lockdown, the robot does its sweep maybe while the shifts are on. Yep. And then between, while there's shift changeovers or whatever, the robot's inactive. Yeah. Perhaps or something. But anyway. Yeah. They move into the cipher room. And I've got a couple of notes here because this is what we're talking about, the actual main part of the raid. Avon's come down, Gan's come down, Callie's come down. Yes, and we find Jenna's role in the mission is clearly to operate the teleport. But It's the first time that everybody but Jenna goes down, and yes. it's the second time that a lot of the crew go down apart from Jenna. Yeah. For anyone who's familiar with Blake 7, that is probably one of the regular complaints. And after what is quite a strong start, Jenna starts to move more into the background as the series goes on. I noticed during this part, Gan is very violent with the prisoners. He enjoys throwing them around, throwing his weight around, sort of shoving them. Whereas Callie, and I don't know whether this is deliberate or it's just the way that it looks or the way I'm seeing it, but Callie is very hesitant and actually really Mm. looks uncomfortable holding those prisoners guard. She she sort of has a few moments where she talks herself up, Mm. but when she's left alone by Gan, she's sort of looking around quite furtively, not quite sure what to do, very nervous. Yeah. And it goes to our sort of building theory that for all of Callie's talk, She's really not a natural-born fighter at all. No, I don't think so. It's interesting also, 
the crew, when they come in in the raid, they don't just kill everybody in cold blood and now we've got the rune to ourselves, take the thing. They actually make the point, they knock the guards outside unconscious. They take the prisoners out of the room and hold them somewhere else. Yes. They say, we're not just going to kill you. Callie doesn't even, when uh, Prell is moving there, obviously, to try and grab the canister to throw at her, and he does it a couple of times, she doesn't actually just shoot him or no. incapacitate him as a warning to the others or anything. But uh, having said that, they're quite happy to plant charges and have them blow off and kill an unspecified number of people. <laughs> and I was going to say, it is good from a character point of view that they don't do that. Mm. It is unfortunate, however, that, as I said, it does lead to a lot of people being gently shoved and falling down unconscious. <laughs> Speaking of which... There's a really weird cut in the middle of the raid where Villa is trying to stop the guard from set off the alarm. Yes. Suddenly it cuts to the guard reaches for the switch, Villa reaches for the guard, and it cuts to the guard falling There's over. There's this sort of, ooh, or something, and then the guard just hits the ground. Yeah. That's in every version of the mm. story. I remember when we had the compilation tapes, I just thought that was cut mm. as part of the compilation, and I was really excited when I got the unedited copy to go, right, what really happens here? And it's cut there too. Yeah, it is. So, look, I don't know. It'd be quite interesting to know what was filmed there. Speaking of, there's also an interesting cut and an interesting point in the plot in that clearly the idea is they're going to go down, they're going to get this cipher machine mm. from the cipher room. A1 goes down, he's got his little electronic pizza cutter thing <laughs> and he sort of cuts the wires and disconnects the circuitry and he, he pulls something out and gives it a quizzical look and, mm. and everything. And then the cipher machine seems to be sitting there and he says, Gan, I can't get this out, can you rip it out? And you get all these sorts of gans sort of trying to trying to pull each corner out. Yeah. It cuts away, then it cuts back, and suddenly he just sort of rips this tin foil off the top and pulls the thing out. It, it doesn't really work. I have often wondered whether that was something inserted really to give Gan something else to do. Well, it's inserted, I think, to build up the tension because they need a delay so that they're going right up to the bomb yeah. being detonated to ramp up that tension because they do make this bizarre choice to you know give the bombs like five minutes mm. and they need four minutes to do the mission or something yeah I, I don't know why they can't just set the bombs off to... remotely yeah yeah or plant them after they've you know at least got mm. the soft machine but it does ramp up the tension very well though. it does if you look at this episode and look we'll probably circle back to the characters a bit later but if you notice in this episode really after he has a role in the raid gan really disappears from the episode at this point i think he's got one line after they get back on the ship and then he's got one of the last lines in the episode and and, and even later on when they're talking about potentially finding kelly alive it's i'll go tell gan he's not even there to hear the news (laughs) (laughs) and we'll talk more about that later on the raid obviously they teleport out Callie is left behind. Yes. And we have the scenes of her frantically looking for the teleport bracelet as the timer on the bomb. Yeah, well, very well done. Nice piece of direction there. Yes, it is. Obviously, then, the charges detonate. The scene in the teleport bay, look, it's pretty obvious she isn't there. Mm. Blake does leave the teleport room as soon as he comes back on the ship because he goes up to the flight deck and tells Zen to get them out of there. Yes, which is fair enough. Yeah, and when they have the minute or two where Avon and Villa are fighting, which gives them the requisite minute or two just to push the story along long enough that they're far enough away from the planet before they realise that Callie's gone. Yeah, look, it's convincing. It sold me. And you have a moment there for Blake. Blake's immediate reaction, even though he must know that the rockets and that are after them, is we have to go back. Yes, and Avon is very clear. If you turn this ship round, you will kill all of us. And Blake obviously knows that he's right, but clearly he can't be as clinical and detached about it as Avon is. No, and the way that Gareth Thomas plays it is very good because there's that moment where 
Avon goes to grab at him and he, and yes. he pulls away and it really sells that idea of, I know you're right, but I'm angry that you are. Yes, and I don't need you to tell me you're right. No. Probably just touch one last scene where, just feeding on from Blake's anger, they're on the flight deck a little while later and Avon and whatever are busy trying to hook the cipher machine up and get it working. Blake is still brooding and Jenna comes over and sort of tries to have the discussion. Now, I must admit, maybe I'm being very cynical here, but I read that as Blake being quite manipulative in that he knows that he's going to cop some, shall we say, political blowback Mm. for Callie dying on a mission. And so my view is, if he beats himself up first, the others can't beat him up. And I actually almost think as Jenna's calling him out on that, and he's sort of trying to be the, no, I'm really upset about this, it's my fault, and Callie, oh, she was the only one who wasn't convicted and I got her killed. And Jenna's like... Pull yourself together, dude. I can mm. see what you're trying to do, and no, that's not going to work. Yeah, that's an interesting thing. The bit I think some commentators pick up on, there's the thing there where Jenna makes a very obvious point. Look, Kelly wasn't a child. You knew exactly what she was doing. Blake sort of says, wasn't she? And I think it's that thing he's obviously trying to, yeah, again, build it up that she was quite naive or uncorrupted. She's not a criminal mm. like the others, you know, and I've got her killed, oh no. Whereas Jenna, yes, brings him back down to earth and says, well, Dude, she's hanging around with us. She convicted yeah. herself. Yeah. She was a willing participant in this. Yeah. So, But, of course, you know, Blake's solution is, well, after he sort of angrily pulls away, the way he'll avenge her is he'll go and blow up a, a Federation supply base. Yeah, which is classic leadership technique of mm. giving everybody something to focus on. Yes. And something to distract from his yes. error. Notice it's another sort of softer target, but... <laughs> yeah. You know, killing more dudes, just doing their jobs. <laughs> <laughs> At this point, the story obviously shifts, and we go to Serverland's little space wheel. That's a very cool piece of model work, I think. It say. is. And for all of the you know legends about how the Liberator model destroyed the budget and everything, that's clearly had a bit of time and effort put in, and it must be a decent-sized prop as well. Oh, I think so. Obviously, we, we encounter Serverland. Now, Serverland, unfortunately, is probably not having a great time of this. <laughs> she has a visit from two Federation officials, who, of course, are reminding her that... Blake's activities are influencing or hurting the political situation on some of the outer planets. And some of them have even threatened to withdraw from the Federation. Yes, and she is responsible for this. It, it really is that wonderful feeling. I mean, we've got effectively a minister and, you know, the president's chief of staff or mm. something have been sent on behalf of the president to just go and lay a little bit of smack down. Pretty much, and yeah. just remind her that this is her responsibility yes. and that her inability to deal with the Blake situation is causing problems further up the line. Yes, and the President's making it very clear that he will not be taking the fall for this. <laughs> and you can see that in the way that Jacqueline Pierce plays it. Yes. She's very aware of her vulnerability, or her political vulnerability, I should say, but she then is not willing to give an inch to them and firms up and pushes back. Yes, and indeed reminds them that in the pecking order, she is superior to them. I mean, she uses their titles Secretary Rontaine and Councillor Burkhol. Yes, which segues nicely into a little discussion I want to have about what Space Command and Serverland and Travis actually all are. Now, my theory, I'll put it mm-hmm. to you, is that if you compare the Federation to Nazi Germany... Mm-hmm. This is the SS. Yep. So it is a division of the military that is 
sort of part of but separate to. It's got its own elite status. It's got its own commanders. So if you're a space commander or a space major, that's the equivalent of being like an SS colonel or an SS mm. lieutenant. Although you're technically the equivalent rank, it gives you that extra sort of status and prestige within the organisation. Yep. Because we see later on, Servalan is clearly not the head of the military because there are other divisions and other fleets that are competing for resources That's, and equipment. Yes, actually, because she obviously can't just whistle these three new pursuit ships that Travis wants. She's obviously going to have to go and do some manoeuvring in the background to make yes. sure he gets them. My vision is that there is all of the Federation fleet out there with all their mm. normal everyday sort of, you know, Wehrmacht, if you like, yeah. people. But, but Space Command is this elite division. And the thing that I think gives that a little bit of credibility is that if you look at Terry Nation's previous work in the Doctor Who story, Genesis of the Daleks, mm. he sets up a military and scientific elite that is very similar to that. And there's one point there where the, the military head of that night, as played by Peter Miles, coincidentally, yes. actually is walking around wearing an iron cross. Yes, until he was told to take it off. But yes, <laughs> the scene where she's been confronted by the two politicians, we will see that play out in further episodes and it probably comes to a head during the second season. Yes. One thing I did have, though, about that scene where they come to visit, that feels like it belongs a lot later in the season. Councillor Burkholt makes the point that Blake is committing all these acts of terrorism and all these things are being attributed to him and the word is spreading and people are starting to whisper things about Blake. But in real terms, it hasn't been all that long since he escaped from the London. And it's not exactly like he's committed a huge number of acts of terrorism. Well, see, I read that as implying that there'd been time pass and that what we saw in Story and Major maybe it happened two or three more times since. But, and it's trying to allow that, that, that sense of expansiveness in the story. That's interesting. But then again, the stories don't really, because, I mean, at the end of Time Squad, they're setting a course for Kentaro. They get diverted by the events of the web. And at the end of the web, they're still heading towards Kentaro. Now, given Blake 7 does use the idea that space travel takes time, you don't just immediately arrive somewhere. And we will see that play out in other episodes as well. But Because, I mean, at this point, really, in what we've seen in the series... He's, he's evaded at most, I think, four groups of pursuit ships, some of which perhaps didn't even see him. The other point I had here, the fact that people are talking about Blake and Blake's legend is starting to grow, it shows that the plan to discredit him in the way back really didn't achieve very much because people clearly have not turned away from Blake. People are still rallying around his name. And it again reinforces another of those theories that we're building over this podcast, that both the Federation's grip on power actually is quite tenuous. People mm. don't enjoy being under this administration. And there is a middle class who are active and gossip and talk. And mm. look, you know, you, you could certainly imagine you know, people in the bureaucracy that manage the prisoners after the London gets back or you know, getting, getting the reports in the London and you know, spreading a bit of gossip about, hey, you know, that Blake guy, he, he got off the London. You know, what, what happened here? Mm. And you could imagine that gossip sort of spreading. Yeah, I was going to say, because actually given that we've just said it hasn't been all that long since he escaped off London, do you reckon Leyland and that have made it back to Earth yet or are they still... I, I, reckon, <laughs> I reckon at this point Leyland and Artrex have just turned left at Albuquerque and uh, <laughs> found themselves a nice quiet planet to just go and uh, just go and settle on out <laughs> The main point from Servalane's discussion with Burkhol and Rontaine is that she has appointed a space commander with the exclusive job to seek, locate and destroy Blake. You may tell the President that I am appointing a space commander to take absolute control of this matter. He will be exclusively concerned to seek, locate and destroy 
Blake. Oh, excellent. Excellent. May we know the officer's name? Yes, you may. Space Commander Travis. And I just watch them shift uncomfortably in their seats at that moment. Yes, Peter Miles is really good in this. Yes. He just fixes her with that steel. He goes, I understood that Travis had been suspended from duty pending an inquiry into the massacre of the civilians on the planet Oros. And at the same time, Burkle is just shifting very uncomfortably in his seat. <laughs> yes. But this is the moment, yes, Servalan pushes back. It is a case, well, I have satisfied myself that he is not guilty of any crime here. He acted in accordance with his orders, and I have reinstated him. Yes, and from her point of view, she is politically vulnerable, and if, if not stuffed, if she can't get Blake... Mm. So who are you going to send after that? The biggest bastard you've got on staff. Yes, that's right. And someone who has a personal vendetta against Blake. Yes, and has been proven to be ruthless. In doing so, and they make it very clear that she has done so. She has really put her career on the line by appointing Travis. Yes. If this goes horribly wrong, she is screwed. Yes. And it's really interesting, if you actually watch closely as Rontan and Burkle leave that office, the look that Peter Miles as Rontan gives to Burkle of just... Nah, she's stuffed. He's really quite good. <laughs> now, after they've gone, Servalan has another visitor, which is her friend, her friend in inverted commas, Ray. Yes. Ray, perhaps, is part of the traditional military in that he and his fellow staff officers or whatever are clearly quite concerned that it's Travis that's been appointed. They see him as a butcher, as, you know, someone who's really not very nice. <laughs> and basically threaten that they won't serve under it. Yeah, and this is interesting in a couple of reasons. First of all, it again shows that Servalan is a vulnerable person. She needs the support mm. of the people underneath her, as well as the people above her to maintain her authority, which is again a very realistic place for a commander to be. Yes. It also shows Servalan uh, as a female villain, which is, let's face it, incredibly rare mm. in television, particularly science fiction at this point. The initial idea for Servalan was that she would be male, and I think it is a great decision that they didn't go with oh, that. Oh, absolutely. And, and I have to say also, Jacqueline Pierce, and look, anyone who knows the series knows what sort of effect on the series the introduction of Jacqueline Pierce has. Yeah. She is a great ad. She is phenomenal. And in this scene, you see her ability as a confident female, mm. where she tries to use her sexuality on Ray to try and persuade him and entice him and get him on side. Now, when she works out that he's gay, she then gives up on that. That's interesting. You see, I more took that... I mean, she obviously talks about their friendship that they had. See, I read it more... They had originally been quite close, but she's obviously now been promoted far above him, where that sort of relationship would now be improper. No, I I read it as she was trying to seduce him there, and he he wasn't interested in her. Oh, there you go. And and when she realises that, she, she just... Well, she does. Pulls out the two-by-four, so to speak. Yeah, well, she does. When he continues down that line that he doesn't want to surf with Travis, she immediately switches to, well, okay, that hasn't worked. Now I'm going to order you that you have to work with him. Uh, Yes. The outcome of her discussion with Ray is that this is happening. Travis is doing this. You will serve with him or you will be charged with mutiny. Yeah. Now get out there and make it happen. Exactly. Travis is finally revealed... Yes. Now, interesting directorial choice. We don't see his face for the first couple of minutes that he's there. We we pan into Servalan's office with him from behind. Yes. He's talking to her, and all we just see is the, the shots of him from behind. And then you get this quick cut to see the face mm. with the eye patch. Mm. Yes, the memorable appearance. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very effective introduction. Villa Lorimore definitely needs points for that. These are your orders. 
Destroy Blake. Depend on it. Now, I want to talk a bit in depth about Travis here, and we'll amalgamate a number of points from across the episode into this. First of all, when you look at his appearance, the eye patch is clearly there to make him a little bit sort of scarier. Mm. And, and you know, we get the backstory about how he was wounded and he doesn't care about his look. I'm a field officer, not a... What is it? One of your decorative staff officers yeah, or whatever. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Interestingly, the Liberation Book that we, we've referenced a couple of times posits the theory that putting Travis in leather mm. is meant to imply a uh, warped sexuality and therefore code him as evil. My feeling is the costume department just thought a leather costume would be pretty cool. So I'm not sure how much you can read into that, but it does work though. Where he's watching those photos of Blake being either tortured or interrogated or whatever it is, it, it does imply the fact that they're the ones he's looking at perhaps is some form of, it certainly has a perhaps a sadistic strike. Mm. The initial plan for the series, I think Travis was going to be in, I think it was eight episodes, he was going to be the main antagonist. We would see him in The Way Back, which I think was basically the role that was later given to Jeremy Wilkin. Yeah. And the abandoned episode four would have reintroduced Travis as the main antagonist for the crew. So, of course, given he was going to be this major character and they decided, you know, we're going to give him this leather costume, they, of course, actually went to an emporium where leather outfits were made (laughs) (laughs) and had them sew him up this very nice leather suit. Of course... After they changed the structure of the series, his role was cut back to just five episodes. And I think then there were some issues over the amount they'd spent on his costume. It's interesting that you referred to Travis as being a sadistic before, because although that's the reputation I know he gets, in this episode, I actually took him as being far more psychotic in the clinical sense of the term than sadistic, in that he's indifferent to the emotions of others and and, and ruthless. Mm. But I didn't think he particularly uh, enjoyed inflicting pain or was seeking to inflict pain. And indeed, there are good scenes, for example, where he's talking with Prell, where he's kind of very just, you know, workman. He's certainly very ruthless and quite callous. I mean, look, there's the scene, obviously, where you know, Callie is the property, the concern <laughs> of the interrogations department. He immediately comes in and his first thing when he sees the blokes cleaning up the wreckage of the bomb is just to shout, what are you doing, stop, and then throws them all out. Yes, but once he's asserted his authority, mm. he's actually quite conversational with Prell. Mm. They sort of built Travis up to be the biggest, baddest bastard in the service. Yeah. And look, here I think he does actually live up to that reputation. He mm. is quite ruthless. His immediate approach with people is just to assert his authority over yes. them. We then get into the scene where, of course, we have the discussion about how he first encountered Blake. Now, this is a bit of a retelling, obviously, of some of the things we heard in The Way Back. It certainly tallies with The Way Back. Most of it. I mean, look, Travis does make the point that Blake had only recently joined the Rebels, but he had a following at that point. Whereas Foster, I think, sort of tends to big Blake up a bit. Now, whether that's because he's trying to get Blake on side, I mean, because, you know, Foster does... There were many activist groups, but the only one that really meant anything was led by Rog Blake. Which has some credibility given that Travis was the one sent after him. Mm. But there is, of course, that very nice switch because Travis tells the first part of the story and sets up that Blake had recently joined the Rebels. They'd been attacking the political re-education centres. But when we then get to the effects of what Travis's actions achieve, we then cut to Blake, where we start to see the human cost and we get more the emotional side and what actually happened and how it played out. Which is, of course, that Travis was lurking there for two days 
And again, as we saw on the way back, just opened fire on the group when they tried to surrender. Yeah, which is interesting because it does start to set up that idea that Travis has a strategy of mm. being there first and being patient and getting his results that way, which you know certainly sets him up as not being somebody who just goes in, fire the missiles down the consequences. He's very calculated yes. and very long-term focused. Yes. And it also just, you know, is a little bit of universe building. I like to think that it does imply that Jeremy Wilkins' character was a protege of Travis. <laughs> That's interesting. And maybe, you know, he, he, was, he was using his old mental strategy. So I, I like <laughs> to think that. Set the group up and then you lay in wait and then take them all out. Yeah. Yeah. Now, one point there is that Blake then makes the point that he's now starting to remember things. He even goes as specific to say because he's been confronted with pretty much the same set of events a second time, it's actually helping him overcome the memory blocks. Yes, and it also shows that whilst Travis is a professional here, clearly the fact that Blake wounded him and he's still out there is something that sits very deeply with him. Mm. And I think we'll start to see that become more of an obsession later on. It is. You, you sort of do wonder, though, once he's had sort of the catharsis of killing Blake, what's left for him then? It's sort, sort of like the Roadrunner and the Coyote. Yeah, very much so. Travis obviously then sets out to hunt Blake. He arrives on Kenta Road to assess the damage. Yeah, he's very efficient in the way he does that. And having discovered Kelly and then tortured Kelly, mm. that's very important for the series because now yes. the Federation actually knows what Blake is doing. So they now know that it's more than just Blake, Avon and Jenna on the ship. Mm. You know, presumably she's told them, you know, Gans there, Villa's there. They know the name of the Liberator now, so that's where the Federation starts calling it the Liberator, not just yep. Blake's ship. They know they have a teleport. They know the range of the teleport. So from now on, any time the Federation has a bit of knowledge of the Liberator's abilities or whatever, it's, well, Callie told them. Yeah, so you can thank Avon, giving her the information in the web of how the ship works. Travis then takes Callie away, yes, as you said, to be interrogated. We get the wonderful line where he says, Her luck ran out when she didn't die. Again, Travis, in keeping, sets a trap for Blake that he knows Blake will walk into. Yes. There's perhaps an unintentional joke there. They go to put Callie in the interrogation room. You see her being dragged across the floor. And then when the base commander comes in, he says, we've escorted the prisoner into... (laughs) (laughs) You do note, which perhaps a bit of a continuity thing, she is actually still wearing a Liberator gun belt and holster. Uh, oh, when she's okay. being dragged along the floor, but I, I think that's, you know, two sad men looking at this later. It is. Blake knows via the messages on the Cypher machine that it's Travis hunting him. He then knows who set the trap and can guess the strategy behind the mm. trap and uses that to his advantage. Yes. Note, Avon is again immediately wary of just charging back to Kentaro and mounting a rescue mission because he obviously is expecting, well, hang on, they're going to be waiting for us. Yes. And I think Blake's view is, look, he knows it's a trap, so he's going to work around that, and he's got Mm. the travelling time to do it. Mm. Avon, perhaps, and this is a character thing, would rather have the plan and then start moving, whereas Blake's like, no, no, well, I know the plan involves us going to Kentaro, so let's do that bit. Yes. Travis, of course, is banking on the fact he knows that Blake won't abandon Callie now that he knows she's alive, and Mm. that's the same his track. It's a shame Callie isn't a telepath and can, you know, maybe project to Blake and warn them, oh, wait. (laughs) (laughs) 
we, we probably do maybe have to put a slight shout out there. I mean, Kelly's telepathy is sometimes used in the series and sometimes forgotten about. Uh, yes. The thing there, obviously, the final scene where Blake comes in to rescue her, he defeats Travis's trap because he's already there arrived. You know there, Blake wants to actually beat Travis. It's not enough to just rescue Callie and disappear. He wants Travis to know that I have beaten you and then does that additional assault sort of on his ego, a case, well, I'm not actually going to kill you because you're not worth it. I now know your strategy. I know you're going to be the one chasing me. Yeah, and unfortunately, whilst it works here, it does become a little bit of a trope of sort of Blake trying to find the excuse every episode why he doesn't kill him. It's it's almost kind of like Megatron in the Transformers, like at the end of the episode, every time he needs his excuse not to, you know, kill Optimus Prime. It is a bit, and unfortunately that is probably the main thing where you have the protagonist and antagonist idea across multiple episodes. You, You sort of have to have that moment where... Damn, my dastardly plan's been defeated yet again. Yes. Curse you, Blake. I'll get you next time. Yes. The good thing about that, however, is that by having Travis be that person who takes the mm. fall each time, it allows Serverland to continue without taking that knock to her credibility too often. Yes, but I, I suppose the counter to that is there's only so many times, really, you can allow your baddest henchman ever to make a mistake before, really, you should be doing something about them. Yes, but we'll see that play out. Yes, we will. Probably the last thing is Travis, again, in his obsession, obviously, to get Blake, it doesn't matter if he gets injured or killed in the crossfire as long as they come in and take Blake down. And you do notice his voice crack at the end when he tells them to launch the interceptors. Yes. I order you to take them! Don't stand there, you idiots! Launch the interceptors! (laughs) Very nice piece of acting there by Yeah, damn, I've been foiled. But, of course, he gets to monologue at the end. <laughs> as he promises he is Blake's death. It's a nice little ending. I, yes. I really do like it. As I said, this flowed really, really well. A couple of little points that we just need to mention. We didn't mention some of the antecedent in terms of Serverland and Travis. Mm. And that is, if the simple one-line description to give to your team on working on the show or whatever mm. is, this is Robin Hood in space, mm. There's a very obvious antecedent in King John and the show yes, of Nottingham. that's right. And, and that's what you see there. And we do need to give a shout-out to Prell's communicator acting, which is really <laughs> special. Yes. Well, look, it shows either he or the director or somebody have clearly taken a moment just to work out, well, you know, you put it under your chin when you want to talk and you put it up to your ear when you want to... When you... Yeah, it's, it's really cool. It, it deserves its own little note. It, it does. I did have a couple of other pedantic notes. We did mention last time about the sequence of the buttons to work the teleport. It has changed in this episode. If you notice, they're now using the little moving switches yes. as the final step. Yes. And that is pretty much how it will stay. Yes. No, I did notice that. Yes. So Paul Darrow has clearly been giving people lessons <laughs> in how he thinks it should work. <laughs> and, and again, going back to the Robin Hood idea, you notice they now all have surface gear, yes. with the exception of Jenna. Blake is green. Gan, the very large gentleman, is brown, perhaps so, Friar Tuck. Mm-hmm. And you have Avon, who's very nice, pale blue. Villa wears red, and Kelly also is green. So, Does that make Villa Will Scarlet? Yes, perhaps it does. Yeah. And again, yes, he's the wisecracking Troublador. That's right. <laughs> One serious production note I did have, this was the last episode filmed before the series started transmission. Uh, this was filmed just before Christmas. And we will talk about the production of Blake 7 perhaps a little later in the season. They are now starting to actually have a bit of pressure to get these in the can and get them done because the series is now on TV. Yes, they have now have fixed screening dates to meet. Yes. Yeah. So, 
as I said, I really enjoyed this one. I don't think it's as good as Spacefall, but it's very, very close and equally, I think, effective. I was really entertained for the 50-odd minutes of this one. And I didn't really notice the time going by, unlike last week where we did say it dragged. This one moved along at a really decent clip, and I was quite surprised we got to the end as quickly as we did. No, I agree. I, I felt exactly the same. So, we'll move to our regular segments. Our first segment is the guest cast. The first one we're going to look at is Peter Miles. Now, of course, his big genre credit, I think, is as NIDA in Genesis of the Daleks. Which has frequently been voted by fans as the number one Doctor Who story. So, it, it is a big deal. Oh, and let's face it, NIDA is awesome. Thank you. That's what I wanted to know. He was in two other Doctor Who stories. He was in The Silurians, oh sorry, Doctor Who and The Silurians and Invasion of the Dinosaurs. Two of my personal top ten stories, I've got to say. Yeah, and he's great in those two as well. He's very, very good, yeah. And he has a lot of work later, associated work from Doctor Who, both professional and semi-professional. Yes. One note of interesting note about him I didn't realise, he quite an accomplished jazz and soul singer. Yes. And appeared on Dusty Springfield's very first record playing guitar, yes. apparently. Yes. Yeah, and was doing concerts actually as late. I mean, he's obviously sadly recently left us, but he was doing concerts as late as the middle of last year. Oh, right. Yeah. Okay. Three genre credits that I noted for him, he was in Survivors. Yes, he was. Moonbase 3. Yes, he for, was. For his sins. And Doomwatch. Yes, he so was. So that, that's a pretty good covering. of. All he really needs is the Tomorrow People, and he's basically got all the 1970s sci-fi. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so his compatriot in Servland's office playing... Councillor Burkle is John Bryan, hmm. who has also got a number of credits, not a lot of leading roles. He did play Cardinal Wolsey in the movie version of Henry VIII and his Six Wives oh, yeah. uh, with Keith Michelle. Mm-hmm. He was in The Rock Follies. Oh, yes. He was in The Oneidan Line. Yeah. And, and a lot of dramas like that. Unfortunately, he did appear in Doctor Who in probably the most problematic character ever to appear in the series, and that's Torvald in The Creature from the Pit which is a very, very... um, Stereotyped role. Very, very troubling performance, unfortunately. Yes, we will encounter him again in Blake 7, of course, as indeed we will Peter Miles. Yes, um, John Bryan actually comes back a couple of times, Mm. and we'll uh, talk about that when we get there. Yes. We mentioned his communicator acting a few minutes ago, but Prell is played by Peter Craze, who is brother of Michael, famous from Doctor Who. We will meet him again in Blake 7 in a different role a little later in the series. A lot of his later work, I think he then moved sort of to the other side of the camera and does a lot of work both in in stage and TV directing, and and I think he now works mainly as uh, as an acting teacher, I think. I think so, yeah. Mm. Uh, He appeared in three Doctor Whos. He was Daco in the Space Museum. He was Dupont in one episode of The War Games, which, if you're wondering who that is, it's the French guy they pull through the window in about episode eight. Right, okay. <laughs> one to go back and rewatch. <laughs> You'll watch all ten episodes just for his two scenes. I was say, that's actually got Leslie Schofield in it, too. That's but... true, again, for one scene. Yes. And he also played Costa in The Nightmare of Eden. Uh, yeah, that I do remember. Yes. And he was also in Minder, and Bergerac was another credit that right. for me. Again, he's in quite a lot of remembered television series from that yes. period. And maybe one quick mention, of course, Ian Cullen, who plays Base Commander Escon, was quite famously in the Doctor Who story, The Aztecs, where he played Ixta, the main warrior. The, the one dressed in the leopard skin. Yes, yeah. the, the main Aztec warrior. Yep. Well, we'll now move on to, look, it was the 1970s. Yes. And what have you got for us this week, Richard? Well, we, we talked about the security robot prop earlier, and, and I think that is a very 1970s prop. 
Yes. Look, we will see it once more in the series, and I, I actually probably make the point, I think it's more effective in its second appearance than it is here. Oh, I think so, yes. All right, so moving on to the Liberator database, we obviously have a number of first appearances, Space Command, Serverline, and Travis. We also have a few other little bits of continuity. This is the first time we hear Dudley Simpson's Federation March. Yes. Which we get various versions of across the rest of the series now. Mm-hmm. We don't actually see one, but this is our first mention of Mutoids. That's right. There's the mention of the Starburst-class pursuit ships. Yes. Which we will encounter in future episodes. Yes, yeah, so we are actually now seeing some foreshadowing and, and again, universe building in the series that, yes. of what's going to come. Interesting to note, this is the first time we see the teleport effect done from the point of view of the characters rather than the, yes. the, the, the sets changing. That's right. And a very important piece of world building here. Mm-hmm. It's our first introduction to the Liberator's Space Cups, <laughs> which, which are polystyrene cups with bits of tin foil around them. <laughs> Now, Richard, you've got a new segment to introduce to us this week. Yes, we, we mentioned earlier in the episode that Gan really didn't have a lot to do once we got out of the raid on Kentaro. And unfortunately, again, look, anyone familiar with the series knows this is a, a recurring problem. That from this point on, Gan is quite often sidelined in the scripts. There is that famous anecdote where they're doing the read-through and David Jackson passed the note saying, I've only got four lines this week. And there is examples in later episodes where they're starting to write things in for Gang to do, which is why I was wondering earlier if it was mm. ripping the top off the control panel. It was an example of that, but perhaps not. And you also notice as well, once we get into the second series where Terry Nation isn't writing the episodes, there is much less of an intent to give Gan a role in the actual mission. Yes, well we will talk about probably a bit later. Terry Nation towards the end of series one did write his thoughts on how the characters were progressing and where he saw them going. He has one very clear standout, and then he has a couple that he feels the series could maybe lose. We'll talk about that a bit later. Uh, Yes, but we will foreshadow by saying that uh, Dave Malone and Chris Boucher didn't always agree with Terry on those ones. No, I think they did with the best player, but... uh... And look, it's not really to run Gan or David Jackson down. It's just a bit of a lighter segment where we have a look at what Gan did this week. Yes, so after ripping the lid off the piece of tin, yes, uh, he doesn't do a lot. And to the point that, as you said, he's not even in the scene where they discover Callie's still alive. No, that's right. Gan's off Ganning somewhere. Yes. And of course, finally, our other lighter panel, which is what cool lines did Chris Boucher give Avon this week? I've only got one nomination for this this week. Oh, really? Okay. Avon actually doesn't have a lot of lines in this. Mm. But the one that I really love is where Blake is pouring his heart out, telling his story about how his friends were massacred and everything. And Avon has turned to him at one point and goes, didn't you post any guards? <laughs> just, just this like utter contempt of you idiot. You basically deserve to be killed. <laughs> and it's just that contrast because... Gareth Thomas plays it really well, and he's really mm. like pouring out his heart. You know, my twenty closest friends—they're all we were butchered, and everyone's just like, "You're an idiot." <laughs> um, I had a couple. There's his line at the start where he says about that's the problem with heroics—they seldom run the schedule. There is a moment when they're in the teleport bay shortly after that, where Gan and Callie want to teleport down to help Blake, and Jenna says, "Yes, Avon's right." I usually am. <laughs> <laughs> he also has a pointed dig at Blake a little later where they, they start listening to the cipher machine. He sort of makes the point, well, at least I know what the Federation is planning. <laughs> yeah, it's a very subtle one. I'm sorry I missed that one because that's yeah. a good one, yeah. And the one final one I had, it's not actually an Avon line, but it does show there is still an antagonism between him and Jenna. When they're trying to get the voice fix on Blake, Avon says to her, a fraction out and you could put us down in the middle of the security barracks. And Jenna actually says, don't tempt me. <laughs> 
Which is probably her best moment in this episode, Sam. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. But it does show there is still obviously that, that antagonism between them. Which brings us to the end of the episode and our player of the week. Right, well, this is your episode, so it's my turn to go first. That's right. Look, I think that we probably both went very close on this one. Mm-hmm. I've gone for Travis. Right, and I actually went for Serverland, so... So that's, that's well done, and again, yeah. not planned. I did want to put a small shout-in to Peter Miles, because I thought he was excellent in that scene. He does a lot with a very small role. Yes, he does. But look, Travis here is introduced, and I think this is one of the best performances we'll get from him, certainly played by Stephen Grief. In that, there is a lot of really good light and dark and shade in his mm. performance here. And as I said, he switches between being authoritarian when he needs to, to being persuasive when he needs to. The way he interacts with Serverland is really good. His presence is really good. And I think that he steals this. Jacqueline Pierce of Serverland is, is very good. And I can totally mm. see why you've given her your award. I think that she's just a little underdone here, whereas Stephen Grief really hits the ground running in yep. this one. I must admit, I really like Travis in this one. I did go for Serverland, I think probably because, and maybe it's a bit of foreshadowing, but in terms of really how the series changes now that she's a part of it. And we will see that particularly as we go on. But I thought she really hit the ground running. She will become a major part of the show from here on in. Yeah, absolutely. We, we now feel as though this is Blake 7 as we know it. Yes. Next week we have an episode that's not so much Blake 7 as we know it, but I'm really looking forward to going back and looking at this one. And it's one of mine, so I'll uh, be doing the first round. And that is, of course, Mission to Destiny. Yes. So... I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Please join us in a fortnight. And in the meantime, set course for destiny. Thank you for listening to Spacefall, a Blake 7 podcast, recorded in Australia by David Kitchen and Richard Nolan. If you enjoy our chat, please subscribe and leave a review. We can be contacted by email via spaceballpc at gmail.com. We can also be found online at facebook.com slash spaceballpc and on Twitter at spaceballpc. Richard and Dave also co-host the Goodies Pirate podcast and Dave co-hosts the Doctor Who show podcast on which Richard also appears from time to time. We'll be back in a fortnight with more Blake 7. Far and as fast as you like, I'll find you. You can't hide from me. I am your death, Blake.